Welcome, dear friends, to Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower the community with information and support. Well, it's December, and time once again to break our prime rule, never date the program. The reason is simple. These programs are archived and are as fresh now as when they were first aired. But, as I said, it's December, and we'd like to take a look back over 2019 to see where we've been and what lessons we might have learned along the way. First, some interesting facts. We promised guests from around the world, and the world did not let us down, providing us with guests from across the USA, Canada, and Israel. 2019 featured more professionals than ever before, and this year we branched out into a second language with our first ever Hebrew language program. 2020 may feature more programs in Hebrew, as well as our first program in Arabic. Our goal is to reach out to as many people as possible, so if you would like to host or guest in a language of your choice, please let us know, because the sky really is the limit. We opened in January with our producer and graphic artist, Nancy Jensen, in an episode entitled Release, Relief, and Peace. Nancy talked about how she continues on after the loss of her daughter, Jessica. Jessica had been sick all of her life, and so Nancy suddenly found herself not only without her daughter, but also suddenly without the work that had defined so much of her personal life in caring for Jessica. You know, for a while I did have guilt that I was moving on with my life and doing things that I never could do before. But one of my sons taught me something very important. Mm -hmm. After his sister died, it was like his time to live. Mm -hmm. Because of her anxiety, because noise bothered her, because of all these things of her being so sick the last few years of her life, my sons did not invite friends over. They mm -hmm. did not have parties. They exactly. And they didn't go out much. And so once she was gone... My middle son, who was um, going into his junior year of high school, he was like, Mom, can we invite friends over? I said, sure. Really? Yeah, sure. Are you sure? And I'm like, yes. I would love it if you had friends over. Yeah. And he was like, wow, we can actually do this now. And they started having game night every week. And I loved Wonderful. it. We'd have up to 14, 15 kids here. That's great. Having so much fun. And at first I kind of felt guilty. But then I thought, you know what? They put their lives on hold. And Jessica is safe. She's happy. She's whole now. And I don't need to worry about any of her anxiety issues or medical issues. And it was wonderful having all these, the youth in my home, having fun. So, yeah, he taught me a lot by, by doing that. February featured my boyhood friend, Peter Puglisi, who I had not seen in 47 years. Some 10 years previous, Peter lost his wife of 20 years to cancer and was left to raise two teenage girls on his own. Just before the first broadcast, his oldest daughter married, and now Peter himself is on his way to marrying again. That's the kind of person she is. She knows that, you know, she's not here to replace her. Um, she's following her. Right, and there's right. a big difference, and it's not just terminology. There's a big difference because, oh, sure, like course. I said, there is no competition. Sure, you can't give up. You can't lose what you had, but you can have something new. Exactly, exactly. And we'll make new memories, and we are. We're doing a lot. Of, we're we're we'll spending a lot of time together, and good. Um, it's just great. It's just great. I mean, if you would have asked me ten years ago, would I uh, feel this way about another woman and be in this kind of a relationship? I would have said you're crazy. Right. But 
I have moved on and I have healed to a point where I understand this relationship and, and I understand the relationship I had with Linda and the two are mutually exclusive. It's not one against the other. It's that was then. And this is now she'll always be with me. The relationship will always be with me. But, you know, like my kids said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm still a relatively young guy and I shouldn't be alone. And it's great that I found someone that feels like me and we can have that kind of relationship. You know what? I, I think you deserve that. I think you've suffered enough. I really do. I mean, all of us who've suffered loss, you know, we all have something to say about it. We all have something to say mm -hmm. about each other's loss. But I think, you know, you deserve a break. I think you deserve something good to happen to you. And you, and, and not taking away your kids are wonderful, okay? And and mm -hmm. your daughter getting married is wonderful and your son-in-law is wonderful. But you deserve something for you. You deserve something. You just need that. I think it's totally Thank okay. You. You're welcome. Thank you. I now, appreciate you saying that. In March, I spoke with Brittany Ramos and Julie Joyner, two bereaved mothers who found their own healing by helping others heal. Together, they organize retreats for families who have lost children, during which they share stories and sorrow, but also make new friends who can uniquely understand their loss. You obviously have, have found a sense of healing, the two of you, through your own work and through the things that you do, and you have a sense of healing that involves the whole family. Give me a story about how that happened at the retreat, how you helped somebody else. I think as the retreat started, um, there was a song that I wanted to put in and we played that song and that was kind of the start of our weekend. It was an emotional song that we could all connect on and throughout the weekend, it went from complete strangers but in that instant of knowing that we all had the same pain, just that comfort of being around each other, you just know each other on a deeper level than you can connect with most people. And so as you could see families opening up and sharing and husbands saying things that maybe their wives have never even heard them open up about and just the healing process as we could see it happening with others and their families, that was very awesome for us. In April, we mixed things up a bit when guest host C.J. Anderson interviewed me about my feelings on the loss of my daughter, Liel. I spoke about life from death and the importance of organ donation and how even in death you could turn your negative into somebody else's positive. Does it give you comfort knowing that Liel really lives on in four other people? This was a decision where life and death were no longer a part of it in terms of Liel. She was gone. So we could give life to somebody else. So A, if you save a life, that in Judaism is the most important commandment of all. You can throw away all the other commandments if it'll help you save a life. That's important. For that two, is so important. You're absolutely right. There's no better way to immediately and with great significance to memorialize her. I love that. Was that. Giving life from her to somebody else is... The best way to memorialize her. And number three, quite frankly, as a parent, any part of her that can still walk around, I'm happy with that. Okay? Yeah, I bet that's an amazing feeling to know that, you know, out of all the loss that is there, that, you know, she did make a difference. And she is making a difference not only in those four lives, but those four lives of those families also. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful gift that Liel has given to this world. Absolutely. We wish we didn't have to do that. But we didn't have a choice, really. And once that 
once that part of the equation was moot and there was nothing for us to do there, it was the easiest decision we could possibly make. And above all, you know, do the right thing. In May, I met with Danny Mack, a man who calls himself a happyologist. Danny is a theologian, philosopher, motivational speaker, life coach, spiritual healer, and an expert in rock and roll. His latest book, If Grief is a Game, These Are the Rules, makes us look at grief in a realistic and sensitive way. Danny speaks of the need for someone in grief to rediscover happiness. I have found out that what grieving people want more than anything else is to be happy again. And they feel like happiness will never be there. They feel like this is the way I'm going to be the rest of my life. And so what I began to do, along with my study of grief, I began to study about happiness and how people can can have in their life, they can have grief and they can have happiness. It's like a railroad track that's going and on one rail of the track in your day, you can experience sadness. On the other rail of your railroad track of life, you can have happiness. And people can experience sadness and happiness all in one day, sometimes in one hour. And so I, part of what I do is helping people get through the grieving process. Then I help them rebuild their life so that they can find happiness and allow grief to be a part of their human experience. One of the things that I hear from people is that from the moment of grief until some point later on, they feel like they can't get happy, that they don't want to get happy, that they feel guilty if they accidentally get happy. So how do you do this? Do you bring them together, the two concepts that you can at the same time experience both joy and grief, and that somehow from now on they're going to have to live together? How do you do that? One of the things that I do is I do grief support groups. And in the grief support group, having everyone share their experience and talk about their experience, it begins to normalize the grieving process. And then I slowly begin to point out to people they are already experiencing grief and happiness at the same time. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Hi, my name is Jamie Alcroft, and I just published my new book, The Tin Man Diaries. It's an amazing story of my sudden change of heart as I went through a heart and liver transplant. I can think of no better way to read The Tin Man Diaries than to cuddle up in your favorite Hearts Unite the Globe sweatshirt and your favorite hot beverage, of course, in your Hearts Unite the Globe mug, both of which are available at the Hug Podcast Network online store, or visit heartsunitetheglobe.org. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. In June, we met with Hani Sidis from Haifa, Israel. 
Chani is a therapist who works with families who have experienced loss. Among her many techniques, she uses acrobalance to form trust between parents and children. Chani was also our first guest to do her interview again in Hebrew, extending the program's international reach. If all goes well in 2020, she will not be our last. I decided to start acrobalance as a therapeutic tool. In the regular sessions in my clinic, with parents and children. And it was amazing uh, because you want to be a fly on the wall when you hear about uh, children and uh, parents hearing for the first time that I'm an acrobalance teacher and I want to teach them some uh, acrobatic uh, poses. So children can say, oh, my mother is too weak. She can't hold me. And the mother say, what? No, of course, I'm strong. Or a child can say, uh, my my father will sure drop me. Or I fall. Or do you want to kill me? (laughs) Um, Or they say, oh, I can do that with my father, not with my mother. And the, the, the parents they say too, they say, uh, uh, what, acrobat? No, never, I'll never manage to hold him. You hold him. Uh, so it's, it's a great journey that, that we're doing in the clinic, um, learning how to trust, learning how to work with our body, uh, balance ourselves on, on, on our parents, families, always say that ever since they started to do acrobalance, their relationship in, in, in the home changed dramatically. In July, I met with Ron Glenn Kelly, a motivational speaker, author, and bereaved father. Ron works with businesses to understand grief in the workplace. He shows that how we deal with grieving co-workers is critical to their well-being as well as to the business itself, and that the better a workplace understands the grieving employee, the easier it is to reintegrate into the work routine after loss. There is a huge economic factor. Right now, the studies will show you that there's over $100 billion in annual revenue loss due to the, the hidden direct and indirect costs of grief in the workplace in the United States. That's an astronomical figure. One of the the biggest losses for business, whether it's here, whether it's there, is always going to be unscheduled absenteeism. Now, unscheduled absenteeism in the United States costs American businesses over $420 billion a year just in itself. But now the average bereaved employee is going to take an additional 30 days of unscheduled absence from the workplace just because of his bereavement or her bereavement. Now, Why do they take that additional absence? Because they don't feel safe and comfortable in the workplace. It used to be a comfortable home, but if it's indifferent or even hostile to their grief, and you know as well as I do, when the mind is in trouble, the mind is going to seek a place of safety and comfort to process its trauma, is it not? So you wake up one morning and you're in a massive wave of grief. Um, you're going to want someplace safe where you can process that grief until you can get rid of that wave and wait for the next one to come. And if the workplace is not that safe place, you're liable to, to, to shelter in place that day right there in bed and not go to work. That's just one example of the, the direct cost of grief to the workplace. There's another study, and I'll be quick about this, another study where 25,000 bereaved active employees were interviewed. 85% of those who identified as managers said that after their loss, For up to six months, they had major errors in judgment on the job. 
90% of frontline workers who became injured, and these are all cited statistics, 90% of workers who became injured on the job after a loss reported that that injury was directly related to their grief. Now you're talking about workers' comp rates. Now you're talking about general and liability insurance. You're talking about a number of factors there. Now you want to talk about a workplace that's hostile towards grievers, and you're talking about increased hiring costs and training costs and uh, lack of production. In August, we spoke with Alden Salovey, a bereaved husband who writes prayers for a modern time. A prolific author, his prayers and poems have been used by religious leaders of all faiths, and his insights into the human psyche are something we can all learn from. There was part of me that felt that if I was too joyful, I was somehow taking away from my grief. We've all felt that that guilt, yeah. Guilt is, is, wasn't exactly what I was feeling. It was more like um, a feeling that it somehow um, was not giving it the, the Hebrew word is kavod, the honor right. that, yeah. the, that the grief needed. And so... It felt, it uh, felt wrong to be happy for a while. That joy couldn't be fully experienced mm-hmm. because somehow it... it diminished my grief. I, okay. I, I don't know how to word that differently. The The breakthrough was really understanding the truth of the matter is that I can hold joy in one hand and I can hold grief in another hand and my right. joys don't take away from my griefs and my griefs don't take away from my joys. And once I had that breakthrough, mm-hmm. I realized that I have experienced brokenness, but I'm not broken. Well, then I'm going to ask you to uh, read another one that combines so many of these mixed feelings and these opposite forces within us that we feel from time to time. One of the hardest things to pass through after somebody dies is their birthday. And you have a birthday prayer. Can you share that with us? Yeah, thank you. This is called Birthday No More. It appears in uh, my book called This Grateful Heart. And I'm going to read it in Amy's name. There's a actually a blank line in this to fill in either the name of the deceased or the relationship with the deceased. So I'm going to read it in her name. This empty space and time in my heart is yours, dear Amy. It is the space for yearning the space of memory, the day your light came into the world, a day of sorrow for what was lost, birthdays that will never be. This day touches the depths of my grief and loss. This day touches a wound and makes it new. God of generations, be with me and my family as we remember what was and what might have been. We miss you. In September, I spoke with art therapist Hannah Sherebrin. Oftentimes, we speak of thinking outside the box, but Hannah, in her group therapy sessions, takes the box and literally throws it away. Let's listen to her tell the story. And then what I do is I take a big, uh, you know, a box of crayons and I open it up and I say, "Look at those. It's organized in here. Whatever the colors, it doesn't matter where they are, how they are, but but it's in the box. It's fine it looks okay and that's like and then what i do is i take my hand and i give a big bang from the bottom (laughs) and everything flies and 
And that is really, and people have different reactions, and the reactions that people have are the same reactions that we all have for uh, trauma. Sure. There is there is the the fight, the flight, the freeze. You know, people yeah. are um, either getting up immediately and trying to get things together, or they are they're they're kind of uh, moving back, on, or they're freezing, they're frozen to the to the point, and then after a little bit, it's it's you know they start putting things together back in the box. That amazes and me. That, I look that at that part amazes books. me that people get up in the middle and just start putting it back. I, you told me that in the pre-interview. I, but that but it, they but they do because what is happening? You see the things on the floor, right. and you realize because I don't do anything. I just sit there, <laughs> and they take and they put it back into the box. And they're even looking, if they see that there is a space in the box, they look around, and sometimes I look around and I point at something that over there, let's see, uh, I can see one over there, and they pick it up and put it in the box. And, and they're very upset if they don't find, if they see that there is a space and they cannot see any more crayons. And we, we, we actually look around and... Once they find it, they're quite happy, and they put it back, and it's in. And I look at it, and I tell them, I look at them and say, would you, um, is this okay? Does it look fine now? Would you like to change some things in here? You can, you can if, if it doesn't feel right to you, you can take some crayons and put them in different places and so on. And once they finish that, some, some people do, some people don't. I say, okay, is it fine now? And they say, yeah, fine. I was five hours old when I had my first surgery. The only advice I can really give someone like that is to be there for your family. This is life and you have two choices. You either live it or you sit in a corner and cry. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. Join us on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time on Spreaker, our blog talk radio. We'll cover topics of importance for the congenital heart defect community. Remember, my friends, you are not alone. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org, and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Connor returned to the studio for our October program, where she discussed her personal loss. She explained that whenever we face a new trauma in life, we must certainly relive and again resolve our previous traumatic experiences. You remember what I said about the crayon box. You put the box back together. It's never going to be the same as it was before. And it's not. 
But so where comes where, where do you get the need to go back and reprocess forty years when, later? Did you when you when you get a new trauma? Ah. Okay. And the new trauma is like giving the box again a bang from the back from the back. Uh-huh. So everything spills out again. So everything you've done you have to go through again. So you have to reorganize yourself. Wow. It's not necessarily everything you've done, but you know already in mm -hmm. a way how to gather it up because you've done it before. Wow. So you're not new at it. So it's perhaps more familiar. It's like riding a bicycle. You never forget how to ride a bicycle. Right. But, mm. but, you know, if you fall off a bicycle, you get back on. And right, you but there's that moment of rebuilding, sure. And if you fall again, yeah. you again have to remember how you got back on the bicycle again. But maybe it's a little easier. In November, we close the year with Dr. Sandra Schatz, who works with grief and trauma in the American military. Among the many things we spoke about was the question of post-traumatic stress when a soldier returns home. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about what post-traumatic stress disorder is. Okay. Our brains have a part called the amygdala, and that is what's in charge of the fight-or-flight phenomenon. So when we feel threatened, either we're going to protect ourselves or we're going to get ourselves to safety. So that's the amygdala that's kicking in the anxiety to make that happen. Now, for most of us, let's say I'm on my way to work and I get into a near car crash. My amygdala will shoot up into high gear, but then when I realize I'm safe, it'll come back down again. Mm -hmm. However, a soldier in a war experience, that amygdala goes into high gear and it doesn't really have the opportunity to go back to low gear. Wow. So let's say you and your buddy were out doing a mission and your buddy should get blown up. You don't get the luxury of stopping and mourning the loss. You have to keep going forward with the mission. When you're done with the mission, you might go back to the base. You might have a chance to talk to the chaplain or maybe a coworker, but tomorrow you better be ready to go full speed again as if it never happened. But it did happen. So you have to learn how to cage that up and control it, bottle it up wow. so that you can function. Now, the amygdala stays stuck in high gear and you leave the war zone and you come back here to the United States and your spouse is expecting the same person who left. Wow. But you come back and your amygdala is in high gear. Now, there's how, things... Wait a minute. How long, how long can it stay in high gear like that? We're talking about the cases where it doesn't come back down. So you're home with your family and Yes, you and I would observe that they are safe, but they don't feel safe because the, the amygdala is still in high gear. So they're driving along the Highway 35 in Texas, and they see a McDonald's bag along the side of the road. Okay. Now, in a war zone, something as innocuous as a hamburger bag can be a roadside bomb. So it's right. really a matter of life and death that you avoid that. So here you are driving along in the SUV with the wife and the kids. You see that trash bag. You slam on the brakes, swerve your vehicle because you're trying to protect your family and drive off. And wow. your wife is thinking you're absolutely nuts. Oh, man. It totally makes sense from a PTSD perspective what you're doing. So, yes, you think you're doing the right thing. And wow. then you're shocked to learn that your spouse and kids think you're being stifling and overprotective. And you think you're just being realistic. 
So, here we are, December, and what have we learned? We've seen a variety of different circumstances of grief. We've seen that for all of us, despite the similarities, it is still a tremendously private experience that we take with us into our daily lives, where not everyone is totally sensitive to or even aware of our struggles. But despite that, we've seen that sharing grief is still an excellent way of lightening that grief, that we all have something to share, and more importantly, we all have something to learn from the sharing. We've seen that life is a constant reordering of things, that loss remains a part of who we are, and as we move along, it becomes one of the factors that help define us. Grief is not something that ever really ends, but we can find peace, and we can find a way to bundle our grief and take it with us along the way as we continue through life. What is clear to me, at least, is that there are many strategies from which to choose. And that's the thing. We must choose to continue. We must, as the Bible says, choose life. And in so doing, we find that moving on is not moving away. Life is there for our loved ones to see through our eyes, that love continues, and that we are obliged to go on living and loving with and for them. I wish all of us a year of happiness, a year of healing and true peace. I am thankful for the guests who joined us, all the people who create Heart to Heart with Michael, Anna Jaworski, Nancy Jensen, Rachel Greenbaum, volunteers from around the world, Patreon supporters whose support makes this program possible, and all the friends and family who support our endeavor to bring a small ray of light to those who need it. It is no accident that all of our team here is bereaved, for who else understands us best? I'm Michael Lieben, and this has been Heart to Heart with Michael for 2019. Thank you for your time and support. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories.